Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live, the show where I sit down with amazing humans and I unpack their brain with the goal of helping you live your dreams in career, hobby, and life. On the show today is the Mr. Sebastian Younger. Now, if you're not familiar with Sebastian's work, he is a New York Times bestselling author. He is an Oscar Award nominated uh, director for a documentary film called Restrepo, numerous books called The Perfect Storm, Death in Belmont, War, Tribe, and we are here today to talk about his newest book called Freedom. And in this episode, we talk about the relationship between creativity and community, the relationship between community and freedom. We re relive one of his uh, near-death experiences and the work that that pushed him to do uh, in service of his uh, his, his dream to connect and to help people live a, uh, a virtuous life. And it's an incredible episode. I'm very excited to have you tune in right now. So I'm going to get out of the way and let Mr. Sebastian Junger do the work. Hey, this episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show is powered by Creative Live. Now, if you've been in my orbit long enough, you know that for the last decade, my own creativity has been largely focused on building Creative Live. Sure, done all kinds of side projects. I've had books and shoes and I shoot occasionally a campaign, direct a commercial, but Creative Live has been my focus. They are also the underwriter for this show. And that's the reason you don't hear me interrupt the conversation with advertisements every 15 minutes, but it goes way beyond that. You know that I believe so deeply in the power of creativity to affect change, to get us unstuck and to unlock the things, the beliefs, the dreams that we have for this one precious life. And the best way to do that, bar none, is through subscribing to Creative Live. That unlocks more than 2,000 classes. Each of those classes used to cost between 100 and 150 bucks, and now you can unlock all of them. That's tens of thousands of hours from the world's top creators for one low price, all under 149 bucks. So where should you go to get this offer? Go to creativelive.com slash creatorpass. All one word, creativelive.com slash creatorpass. We're adding new classes every week and we're always streaming free content if you're new to the platform and you want to check it out. If you happen to be one of the listeners that already has a subscription, thank you so much and let me know what you learned most recently. I always love hearing your stories and I'm always happy to amplify and give you a high five on social. Now, if you do not have a subscription, this is the time to go check it out and sign up. Sebastian, thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. And uh, I shared some small talk before we before we started recording about our last meeting, which was some uh, 11, 11 years ago now. I've got a great photograph of you here on my phone for the people who are watching this show. I'm putting it up on the screen. You were uh, 11 years ago, almost uh, 11 years and a couple months. Um, since then, you have done a lot. <laughs> you've, I mean, had some uh, Oscar-nominated documentaries. You've had numerous books, including a best couple of bestsellers, uh, and most recently, the book Freedom. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground today because, in many ways, your history, your work, uh, also traverses a lot of ground. And I wanted to start off with how you describe yourself. Our audience are, are creators and entrepreneurs. Um, curious by nature, but uh, I'm curious how you describe yourself, given that you've done so many different things uh, from film to photographers, and maybe you describe yourself as a father or an artist or a journalist. 
Tell me that to start off with. Give a little background. Yeah. Well, professionally, I'm an author and a journalist. I write um, long form nonfiction. Um, and I started making documentary film when I was with American soldiers in Eastern Afghanistan in a lot of combat. And I had a video camera. I started shooting and that got me onto documentary film and I've made a bunch of those. Uh, and since then I, you know, I covered a lot of wars for a long time and I stopped after my, my buddy, my brother and colleague, Tim Hetherington was killed in Libya. I stopped war reporting and start turned my attention to other things, including having a family. And I have two wonderful little girls, four and a half and one and a half, um, who are the sum total of the universe for me. I mean, they're, they're everything. And I'm not sure they, I necessarily would have felt that way, you know, at age 30 when I was running around the world trying to make a name for myself, but I'm 59 and, and they are the central purpose of my life. And, and it's the most, most amazing part of my life, even though I've done many other things I'm very proud of. Is there, uh, is there an easy way to describe that connection, the connection you know, in many ways, so much of your work is about humanity, the positives, the negatives, you know, the most recent book, freedom, big human concepts and having, uh, dove deep on so many, as you mentioned, war and, and, uh, cinematography and the human condition. Uh, is there some sort of, um, larger narrative here about the meaning of life now that you've gone off and lived these adventures and ultimately now you described, you know, your, your children as the center of your universe. Is there a, is there a larger lesson there is, or is that, am I just doing the, uh, am I ascribing that and it's not real? Well, I mean, I, you know, the, the, the ambitions that young people have um, are important and they're important to them and they're important for the world that there are ambitious people that try to accomplish things. And we all, all of us in society benefit from those people uh, and hardworking people of, of every of every capacity, right? Um, and having a family is this very uh, very different kind of energy. And it's you know when you as soon as you have a family, you immediately become very ordinary in the sense that the, the the minutes and hours of your days are filled with things that every other family has to deal with. You know, dirty diapers and meal times and upset children and sleepy children and uh, you know. It's extremely mundane, right? And you know, I have my for a lot of my life as an adult, I've st striven, is it, or strove? I can't. I'm not even sure. What. <laughs> Strived. <laughs> I have tried. We'll go with try. I have tried okay. to do to excel at things, right? And sometimes I think I've succeeded, and all of a sudden you become a parent and you realize, wow, that's. I'm I'm now in very beautiful ways, exactly like every other parent. And there is a um, quiet comfort in that, a kind of relaxation and peace of mind that comes with that realization. It might not come if you were 25 and ambitious, but now I'm 59 and the comfort of that is enormous. And it really allows for me to love in the most profound, powerful, beautiful way possible. And, you know, I, I didn't know that there were feelings like this, like one has for one children. It's devastating. And, uh, and now I look back on my career as a war reporter, my, you know, former war reporter, and I've been in many situations where families, you know, I've covered African civil wars in West Africa and, and, and Bosnia and a lot in Afghanistan. And I look back and 
I realized I was surrounded by families. I was surrounded by terrified parents, people who were terrified that something bad would happen to their children. And back then I didn't have kids and I just didn't quite get it. And now I get it. Now I realize how unbelievably frightening those situations must have been for those poor people. Now, I remember I was in the Liberian Civil War in 2003 and, and um, it's a very, very bad time. A lot of people were killed and I, I had some pretty unpleasant issues with the, uh, the Taylor government uh, that had accused me of being a spy. And I, it was terrifying. The whole thing was terrifying. But there was a, I was a, 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 mortars were coming in and wounding people, killing people, and wounding people. And they brought this guy in um, who was badly wounded with shrapnel. And, and we brought, we got him to uh, Doctors Without Borders. They had a little office there. They're sort of like cutting people open under a tent and trying to save them. And I helped lift this man um, onto a stretcher. And, I, you know, I got his blood on me, right? I mean, I lifted him from, uh, you know, underneath him. And, and his, you know, I pulled my hands back and they were covered in blood. And he looked at me and he said, can I say goodbye to my son? And um, there was this little five-year-old boy who was just terrified and didn't want to let go of his dad. And his dad was going into surgery and he knew he might not survive it. He didn't know how badly injured he was. And um, I said, of course, sir, say goodbye to your son. And they hugged. And I, you know, I didn't quite get how profound that moment was, how tragic that moment was until I myself became a parent. And um, I almost died last year uh, of a, a sort of freak medical thing. And the main the main psychological burden of that was that my little girls almost lost their dad. It wasn't me dying that bothered me. It was that my girls almost lost their dad. And so you you live in a kind of as a parent, you live in a kind of terror, kind of ongoing low grade terror that something will happen to them or something will happen to you and you can't take care of them and love them and they'll be left on their own. And and it's just um, it's it's the it's the cost of being a parent and loving your children, you know, and it's worth, it's worth that cost. But I got to say, sometimes it can be really unsettling. I don't know if you're cognizant of this, but to the central bit of two of those, that the narrative arc that you just shared uh, at the heart of it was love, the word love, you used it twice. And I'm wondering if in all of your adventures, writing about disasters at sea, wars abroad, um, your journey uncovering, homecoming and belonging and and so much here at, at, at in, in the united states is and i understand these are big rather prophetic questions for us to start our conversation with but i'm curious the role that love plays in all that is that have, have you deduced it is, is it more family or humanity or is is love given that that was a central concept in those two little pieces that you shared just now is it love well, yeah, I mean, love is central to the human experience and people that don't experience love um, often have an, um, devastating psychological issues, mental health issues. I mean, love is the thing, right? The thing that allows people to survive almost anything, any um, travail or hardship or, or danger. Um, and children who don't feel um, loved enough when they're very young you know, have an enormous burden for the rest of their lives. Of uh, they have anxiety and bipolar depression, and rage issues, and all kinds, all kinds of stuff. It all comes down to love. And if and, you know, children, they're you know, we're social primates, and young, you know, infant infant humans are 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 completely dependent on their parents for their safety. 
and for their survival. And a lot of a lot of the way an infant knows that he or she is safe is that they experience the love of their parents. And there's this very simple equation. My parents love me. They will take care of me. And infants seem to know this very intuitively, very early on. And um, and the children that don't get that uh, are, are really burdened their whole lives. And so now I go through I go through my life and I realize the the thing that the, the, the things that the things that have changed me in good ways are things that are hard, right? Good luck, good fortune and joy don't really change you, right? They're, they're wonderful things to experience, but they don't change you. The things that really change you are the things that you, that are, are hard and scary and unpleasant and painful. And they, and hopefully they forge, they forge a stronger, more compassionate person, right? But the thing that gets you, enables you to get through those difficulties is love or the, or the, even the promise of love at some point in the future. And those two things, hardship and love paired, um, I think can produce a very complete person in a very meaningful life. Um, and, you know, it's taken me a long time to get there. I'm 59. You know, I'm finally, you know, I slid into home base like <laughs> at the bottom of the night, right? I mean, but I did. Uh, well, I it, it's probably appropriate to congratulate you. That's obviously with the family and this. Um, there's just a, a spirit in your voice that sounds uh, more content than in other. You know, I've listened to lots of interviews that you've you've done in the past, and as I mentioned, we've met before and heard you on stage. And uh, this is a. Uh, cool and fascinating side. So thank you for sharing that. I want to turn for a second, turn to another concept that was present in what you were just sharing. You mentioned us being, you know, social creatures uh, at our core um, and your most recent work. But if you maybe widen the aperture a little bit, you might be able to say that so much of your work has really been about the role of community. And I talk about community a lot with a slightly different lens, the people that you put around you, if you're going to be the average of the five people you spend the most time with, as you know, like our mutual friend, Tim Ferriss says a lot, then you better choose wisely. So there's a community, um, sense it, it I, I think of that as a community with a small C. Um, but let's, let's try and tackle for a second community with a capital C, the fact that we are social primates and that, we truly, you mentioned your children cannot live without support of an adult, um, you know, infant children. And similarly, people who are isolated, that's more dangerous, I've read, than, you know, smoking a pack of cigarettes every day to the prediction of one's, you know, longevity and or health. So let's, in terms of capital C community, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about it. And do you believe that your work is really, really grounded in humanity? Or is that, again, something that I'm ascribing that you did not intend? Well, you know, I studied anthropology in college and I see everything through that lens. And humans spent most, the vast majority of the last 200,000 years, which is basically how long the human race has been around in this form, um, spent the vast majority of that in very close knit groups of 30, 40, 50 people. Um, and so we are sort of wired to operate at that level. And if you look at people's social worlds, if you look at say how the military divides up their maneuver units in combat, a platoon is exactly that size. 
uh, and um, so the, the the thing that keeps everyone alive is the fact that they're part of a group like that, right? I mean, in, in sort of biological terms and anthropological terms, humans don't survive, survive alone in nature. They die almost immediately. But in groups, we survive and actually we thrive. We dominate. I mean, we dominate the world precisely because we're social primates. And, um, you know, one way to know that you're safely ensconced in a group that will protect you and enable you to survive is that you're providing, you're doing something for that group that they need done, right? You're a good hunter, right? They're not going to get rid of you. Where are they going to get their next, you know, meal from, right? You're great at, at you know, pottery and making pots that boil, water gets boiled in. You're a great midwife, you know, whatever it may be. When you contribute to the common good, people get a profound sense of well-being. And, and they've done the, you know, these famous studies where they have someone give $5 to someone else. And the level of oxytocin, which is the sort of feel-good chemical of sort of human connection um, that gets secreted into our brains, uh, the, the person who gives the money actually has a, high, a, a, a um, higher um, oxytocin bump than the person that gets the money. I mean, acting benevolently and with generosity and courage um, for the group makes people feel really, really good. And that makes sense because adaptive behaviors feel good. So we'll keep doing them. And clearly it's adaptive to contribute to the group. And it feels very, very good to feel that the group is loyal to you um, because otherwise your chances of surviving are almost zero, right? So yes, everything is about community. And one of the, the, one of the difficulties of this wonderful modern society that we live in is that we are so affluent and everything is so mechanized, so industrialized that we actually don't need others for, to meet our day-to-day -day survival needs. Um, we are actually not part of a survival group uh, in any meaningful sense of the word. And uh, so what that, that leaves us in some ways wondering how safe we really are, because we're wired to think that our safety comes from those who are immediately around us. Now, we live in a society where every, you know, you know middle class American society, like the Americans are the only mammal that, 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 that doesn't sleep with their young. Right. I mean, they. I mean, we sleep with our, my wife and I sleep with our children, right, uh, uh, in a big uh, pad on the floor. Um, but, you know, most Americans don't. And, they, you know, the children go into their own room as soon as they as soon as possible. Um, only an affluent society could could afford this. And it's completely unique, right, in human history and human society and in the animal kingdom, right, that the young would sleep by themselves in the dark. Um, and then families have single family homes or apartments that are often completely unconnected to the families immediately around them. And then those neighborhoods are really not part of something bigger. And then there's this big abstract idea that we're all part of America, which is 330 million people. And so the, the alienation that comes from the very nature of affluent modern society, the alienation that, that, that comes from that is very hard on people. And if you look at, you know, mental health statistics from this country, I mean, this society, one of the wealthiest countries ever, the most powerful country ever in history, um, that, we, that we are the beneficiaries of, of endless technological miracles, right? We have some of the highest rates of depression and suicide um, and anxiety and addiction 
of any society ever, right? So you got to ask, what is wrong? Something's clearly very wrong. And I would offer what's wrong is that most people do not feel like they're an active participant in their community and sometimes not even in their family. Hmm. Let's keep pulling on that thread uh, at the risk. I, I, you you do an amazing job of, uh, in especially your reportage, you know, you're just laying out the facts, so to speak. Um, and yet I've got to think you have an opinion. And so if we pull on this thread of, you know, connection and isolation, the isolation that we feel either, for example, disconnected from our family and certainly disconnected from our neighbors and our community. And I heard you make the statement just now about that. That's, that's a thing we, we, we implicit in there was that we ought to do that, but how, what's the, what's the mechanism? You know, this is a, maybe a direct question that you'd have to read all of your books to, <laughs> to, to understand, but you've got to, as the parent in you, the friend in you, the neighbor in you, if you see this, you know, in your community, what's the advice that you give to people who do feel disconnected, who are struggling? I mean, I grew up in an affluent suburb where, where nobody really connected to anyone else around them or need, and they didn't because they didn't need them. Uh, because everyone was affluent enough to solve their own sort of problems uh, autonomously with the money that they had. Um, do not live in an affluent suburb. If you, if you want to avoid <laughs> spiraling into depression and alienation, uh, and what is this all for? I mean, live, I mean, I live in a mixed income neighborhood. Um, all kinds of wonderful people in my neighborhood. I live in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, we know our neighbors, we help them, they help us in a, in a, in a million little and big ways. Um, Hurricane Sandy hit that part of New York pretty hard some about 10 years ago or so, nine mm -hmm. years ago. And uh, the, the, one of the women in the building uh, um, you know, organized a sort of guard shifts at the front door. She found a machete and she found some young, sort of young men uh, who were connected to the building and they took guard ships guarding the building against looters during Hurricane Sandy when there was terrible flooding. I mean, you know, I'm not saying you got to live like that, but, but, you know, it just goes, it just speaks to the idea that people in this building, in this neighborhood think we got to stick together because stuff, stuff can get rough. And there's a local, there's a local solution to problems like that. And we got to figure it out and figuring it out feels very good. I mean, I, I, uh, there's a lot of documentation about, say, after the Blitz in London. I mean, during the Blitz in London, um, admissions to psych wards went down during the bombings, right? Because everyone was like, oh, my God, I'm needed. We're all needed to keep this glued together while the Germans bomb us, right? Every night for six months, uh, 30,000 people died in those bombings, 10 times of what we lost on 9-11. And um, everyone came out and and helped and uh and people look back apparently londoners look back on those terrible days with um with real nostalgia and this one woman said there was an oral history of the blitz that i read this one woman said you know all of us ordinary citizens we would have gone down to the banks of the thames and fought the germans with broken bottles if we'd had to had the germans showed up and this was a woman and a civilian and that's where she was at in terms of her willingness to die to defend her people 
against an attacker. And, um, you know, thank God we're no longer at war and good riddance to all of it. But there is an element of, all right, we're in this together. There is an element of, of, of that in a community that is hard to replace when you live in an affluent country, um, completely removed from, um, from stressors like war uh, and, and famine and disaster. Does that make then, does, does utility become a central character in, in modern life? If that's what someone wanted, you know, uh, this particular woman organized the protection of your building and, you know, other I'm needed. I need to go care for others uh, during the bombings of London. Is utility is utility a, a key factor then, or are there other aspects of community? Because again, if we think of the tactic that w- people want to take away from your widely traveled, rich, um, challenging life—a life that you articulated is full of a difficult moments that has helped shape character. And that's that character that, you know, has brought you back to love as we're following this arc here. Is it, is it usefulness? Is it finding the role that we all play and looking inside and what we're best at? Is that a thing? Or again, am I just making this up? It doesn't even have to be what you're best at. I mean, you could be filling sandbags because the river's rising or you could be handing out lunches, you know, whatever. I mean, bag lunches. I mean, it, it doesn't even have to be a particular skill. But if you're not contributing to the common good, you are you are statistically, I would say, at increased risk of depression. I'll just put it that simply. And uh, so, you know, when people lose their jobs or retire, boom, right? They're not contributing to the common good. They're not useful. They don't have utility and they risk they risk depression and even suicide. So, um and again, the, the, the tragedy and the, the beauty and the tragedy of modern society is that society doesn't need any one of us. We're infinitely replaceable, which is amazing, right? I mean, it frees us up to do all kinds of cool stuff, but it also puts it at, puts, puts us at risk of thinking, what's the point? Um, there was one London official in London who, who said, you know, sort of marveled. He said, he said, we have the chronic neurotics of peacetime. And I think we all know people like that the chronic neurotics of peacetime driving ambulances through bombing raids, right? They were needed. They knew there were wounded people that needed help. And I, Sebastian, neurotic as the day is long, I'm going to get in an ambulance and go help those people. And for a little while, I'm not going to be in touch with how neurotic and anxious I am. I'm going to save a life. And if you're deprived of the opportunity to do that, what are you what are you left to focus on? You're left to focus on yourself. And that's where the downward spiral starts. Uh, rumination, excessive rumination, anxious rumination all lead to um, the risk of depression and anxiety. Well, you've been very clear in your last book, Freedom, about the, the role that community plays and uh, and the, how, how this idea of freedom and the community aspect that we've been speaking about for the last, say, 15 minutes, are all, there, there's a very tenuous relationship between those two things. And the concept of freedom, also you, you're very clear in the book, which I would offer, I'd encourage you to expound upon, like what you're free from. Um, 
maybe you could talk just a little bit about the role, the relationship between freedom and community, because I think you've made the point. People can say, okay, cool. I acknowledge I'm part of a community, or if I'm not, I, I ought to be. There's a richness there. I'm listening to Sebastian talk um, again, and this is not a new concept to the people on the show. It's a community is a huge piece of what we talk about. So, but this idea of the relationship between community and freedom uh, is, is fascinating to me. And I'm hoping you can talk about it. Yeah. So uh, let me just start by saying, just tie up a little bit of unfinished business. How do you, how do you contribute to this country? Right. Because the, the, you may live in an affluent suburb like I grew up in and there is really nothing to contribute to. Everyone's doing fine. And if you don't, you know, if you're deprived of, you know, a flood or a rebel attack or a hurricane, you know, if you're deprived of those opportunities to demonstrate your courage and your and your, your generosity or whatever, like, uh, what do you do? And so one way to contribute to this country at the national level, and these are symbolic things, but symbolism as uh as the church well knows, symbolism is powerful and can take the place of, of, of uh, substance, you know, quite well, actually. Um, one way to symbolically contribute to this country, there's three ways, three ways that everyone can do. You don't have to be a 22 year old guy and join the Marines, right? I mean, you could be any person in this country and there's three ways to do it. And the country needs you to do this, right? All these three things. Uh, first of all, donate blood. I almost died last year. I had a ruptured uh, uh, abdominal aneurysm that was undiagnosed and it ruptured out of the blue and I lost two thirds of my blood. And I was saved by 10 people who donated blood and I wound up with their blood in my veins. And, you know, I don't know if they're black, white, Republican, Democrat, old, young, I have no idea. They don't care, I don't care, right? Donate blood because you're going to save someone's life and eventually your life is going to be saved by somebody else. Uh, jury duty. A jury of one's peers is the only thing that keeps individual people like a judge or, God forbid, a ruler, a president or a sheriff or a governor. A jury, jury is the only thing that keeps individuals like that from deciding someone else's fate. Only a group of people can decide someone else's fate. And that's why jury duty is so important. Do not shirk jury duty. Embrace it. It's fascinating. I did it. It's amazing. Like you, and it's your duty. Um, and finally, vote. Everybody has to vote. The nation needs you to vote. And uh, if you don't vote, you are choosing to not live in a democracy. Period. End of sentence. And if you don't live in a democracy, you are not in a state of freedom. In the modern world, that's true. And um, so that I said, that's my piece about how to contribute to this country. If you just do those three things, you will feel connected to this amazing nation. And uh, but so sort of moving on to freedom and community. So freedom is one of the few things people will die for. People will die to protect their children. They'll die to, even to protect other people's children. They will die to defend their community. Uh, and they will die to maintain their freedom, their autonomy, and the freedom of, of those they, they love, those they care about. Um, one of the amazing things about the human race is that smaller individuals, small individuals and small groups could actually defeat in combat, can defeat larger individuals and larger groups. That's not true for any other species, only humans. And my book, Freedom, is about how that all works. It's divided into three sections, run, fight, and think. The first instinct in human history, going back 
thousands of years. Um, their first in instinct for a, a group that's facing a more powerful adversary is to just run away like the Apache did, right? The Apache in the Southwest managed to maintain their autonomy for hundreds of years while their wealthy, sedentary Pueblo neighbors were rolled by the Spanish almost immediately. The Apache were mobile, and that allowed them to stay free for hundreds of years, almost to within my grandmother's lifetime. She was born in 1900. Um, but if you can't outrun your oppressor, you're going to have to outfight them. Uh, and that's, in, that's eminently possible. Um, and, uh, and my book, Freedom, is a study of how underdog groups actually defeat more powerful adversaries um, at the individual level and at the group level. The Montenegrins defeat when the Ottoman Empire invaded Montenegro in the early 1600s. They outnumbered the Montenegrins 12 to 1 and the Montenegrin fighters handed them their hat over and over again. Um, if this were not so, if this were not possible, freedom would not exist in the world. The world would be basically a system of fascist megastates uh, that were controlled by a moneyed elite that ran everything to their benefit. But that's not what the world look, actually looks like. Um, as evidence, the Taliban defeated the most powerful military ever in human history, the United States, and they did it over 20 years. I loathe the Taliban, but the fact that they were able to do that means that some degree of self-determination is possible even by small outgunned groups. You know, and finally, if you can't outfight your oppressor, you're going to have to outthink him. And, and that's where these very, very complex movements spring up of how to maintain freedom and autonomy within a society. The labor movement 100 years ago in this country um, was basically a very, very long chess game that labor organizers played with the U.S. government. And one of the breakthroughs of that chess game was putting women on the street in protests and facing down National Guard troops with fixed bayonets and faced with women, the soldiers didn't know what to do, right? They were completely stymied. It was women that tipped the balance. And as one cop said at the time, a police captain said, one cop can handle 10 men, but it takes 10 cops to handle one woman. That is outthinking your adversary, right? So that's my, my book in a nutshell. But, but here's the interesting thing about freedom and community. Um, you, in, in, during the colonial era, the frontier era of this country, people were constant, constantly leaving the area, the zone of government influence and going out west to the wild west, even, you know, western Pennsylvania, Ohio, Missouri, on and on. So they reached California. What they were doing is looking for their freedom, freedom from the control. Uh, some would say tyranny, maybe, but certainly the control and the oversight of the federal government. They didn't like it. And they went to the wilderness right? A very, very free place and very dangerous, right? And if your life is in danger, if, if your life is continually in danger and you can't defend yourself physically from someone who would kill you, you're, you are not free, right? So what the, the these, I, I looked at the um, Pennsylvania frontier, my family on my mother's side uh, settled in Pennsylvania in the, in, in the, in the 1780s or earlier than that. And, um, some of my ancestors were killed by an attack of, of one of the native tribes of the area. Um, uh, they attacked the, like literally the log, log house that my ancestors lived in. At any rate, so these early settlers were, you know, they were going into this incredibly beautiful, incredibly dangerous place. And, and they did not have federal oversight, right? They were on their own. But the only thing that kept them safe was that they had a kind of mutual defense pact with all of their neighbors. And when there were Indian uprisings, Indian 
attacks and frontier wars, they would all band together. And the deal was that if you were part of this community, you had to fight. It wasn't a choice, right? You had to fight. You had to help repel the Indian attack. And if you were not willing to fight, and as a man, particularly, if you were not willing to carry a weapon at all times, a scalping knife, a tomahawk, and a rifle, at all times, if you were ever caught without those weapons, because these attacks sometimes came really out of the blue, you were, not, you were banished from the community. You were not wanted. So in a sense, they achieved freedom from federal oversight, but were part of a community system that required even more loyalty than the federal government did. So basically, you cannot be completely free and completely safe at the same time. Your safety comes from the proximity of others and being part of a group. And as soon as you're part of a group, you have to abide by its norms and suddenly you're not free again. Hmm. So here we are, modern culture. Uh, there's an underpinning in at least in American culture of individualism and that being tied to your freedom. And so keep moving along this, this path that you've got us on here. Uh, I would argue that most people who are listening or watching believe in their independence, their autonomy, their opportunity, you know, to pursue their dreams in career and hobby and in life. And what I've argued is that that individuality is inextricably tied to being part of a group. So as someone who's found your own calling in life through films and books and, um, storytelling, uh, would you give some advice on this relationship between someone's individual choices and, and the choice or the, and the requirement to find success that is, that ties us to community? Well, yeah. I mean, look around yourself, look around me. Like I'm in a building that was built by people I don't know. I'm sitting in a chair that was built by people I don't know. I had, I fed myself today with food that was grown by people I don't know. The idea that I'm not part of a wider network is just laughable. Everyone is. You drive a car, someone drilled that oil out of the ground and built that car, right? And absolutely nobody provides all of the things that they need for their survival. At the end of the day, even if you do, uh, eventually you're going to have a medical issue and no one performs their own surgery or their own dentistry, right? Like, I'm sorry, you're part of a network. And so the question is, not, I mean, yes, within the um, limits of our, of, of our laws and our constitutional rights, uh, we are free to pursue our, our, our interests and our livelihoods. Uh, and we are, in, we are free to pursue happiness, as it says, the Constitution. Um, and, we, and, and we have the right to be free of oppression. Right? But that doesn't mean we are free of obligation. You're part of a group, right? That doesn't come for free. Now, what you owe is up for debate. I mean, that's part of the great conversation of a democracy. Uh, what do you owe to, to, to the group? You definitely owe your taxes. I would argue you owe your, your damn vote and jury duty and, and you know, donate blood once a year. Um, and, uh, but, you know, what else do you, what else do you owe? And, 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 you know, there's a very good argument that you you owe Americans uh, to not drive on the left-hand side of the road because you're going to kill somebody. You owe Americans to stop at red lights and not drive drunk. You owe that. 
are you free to do otherwise? Yeah, you are. But but that makes you a very, you know, not a good person and you will probably wind up in jail. But you're free to do it, right? So you have your freedom, but there are consequences. You owe a certain amount of responsibility, uh, of responsible behavior to your fellow citizens. And, you know, you can tell that very easily when there's a line at the bank or the post office. There is no law that says you cannot cut that line, right? You're not breaking the law. But I tell you what, um, a, the people in the line won't let you cut the won't let you cut the line, and B, there are plenty of people who would commit fraud, theft, murder, all kinds of ghastliness, right? Who will not cut the line in the grocery store because that social pressure is so enormous. You owe those people the fairness of getting in the back of the line. So the idea that we don't owe anything is complete nonsense. And right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, do we or not, do we not owe the nation uh, reasonable safeguards to not communicate disease to others? That's the big, that's the big debate. That's the big conversation. But the idea that it's not even up for, that it's not even up for debate is silly. Uh, you know, as I say in my book, Freedom, um, no one owes nothing. I mean, only it's, it's literally infantile to think you owe nothing to society. Only children owe nothing. Uh, and in a lot of the world, what children owe their society starts at age six, age seven, age eight, age 10. Children start working very, very early in a lot of the world. Um, we are very privileged that we can delay that moment until 18, 21, 30, 40, whatever. I mean, there are people who are endlessly in grad school, you know, no problem. I don't care. But um, I do understand what a unique and privileged situation that is to even have that as a choice. Indeed. Yeah. And I think, you know, to make this podcast about uh, vaccination, it, you know, I think would is is not my objective, but I think it's fascinating that the idea that we owe our uh, agreement to wear a seatbelt. So sure, we don't, you know, harm others, but that we're not burdening the medical system for, um, you know, dying in a car accident, for example, or getting unnecessarily harmed. And the extension of that to other things like um, public health, public safety in terms of the vaccination, vaccination is certainly makes the case for that you, you can't not participate. You can't participate in society and not owe things. It's not realistic. So uh, thank you for going there. That was where my next question was going to go. Um, but I want to take us on a different path now. Uh, I think this relationship between community and freedom and, you know, I, I've, I've written about the, even the concept of a, of a band. It's not the four people on stage, you know, you go see a production and there's hundreds of people you talked about food and medical, you can't perform surgery on yourself. And speaking of dentist, I was in the dental chair today and I'm very glad I did not have to <laughs> do my own dentistry, but I want to shift to topics and go to your creative process because there are a few people who have uh, the range that you have from uh, reporting to, you know, writing narrative arcs about, um, you know, nonfiction survival, say, um, and documentary films. If I asked you the blunt question of like, what's your creative process? Um, knowing that you've got all kinds of different, you know, media that you work in, let's, let's try and answer the question. What's, you know, what's Sebastian's creative process? <clears throat> yeah, thank you. Well, so, 
you know, we'd have to put the word creative sort of in quotes. So, you know, I'm a journalist. So basically, um, uh, you know, I assemble information and facts. Um, and I try to arrange them in a compelling way using words artfully and hopefully in original ways so that people want to, you know, read, they read the first sentence and want to read the next sentence and want to keep reading all the sentences until they reach the end of the book, right? Um, I'm not looking for inspiration, right? I'm not a novelist. I'm not a fiction writer. I'm taking the world as I have sort of like copied it into my notebooks and into my interview tape recorder and sometimes into my video camera. I'm taking the world as, as it exists and figuring out how to reassemble it in a meaningful way that gives people a greater understanding about something. Um, I mean, I can't imagine being a fiction writer where you're trying to create a world in your head and then project it onto the wall for people to watch as a kind of movie, you know, with words. Like, uh, I mean, I don't know what you have to have done in a previous life to be sentenced to that job. Jesus, right? I mean, how hard, <laughs> like, how hard is that? I'm not touching it. Journalism's hard enough, but, I, but you know, the creative process, using the word loosely, the creative process for me is... I do all my research. I have it all categorized and arranged and organized around me. Um, some of it's nailed to the wall, like literally nailed to the wall in front of me. And some of it's stacked up over here in a pile of books and some of it's spread out. I made this big, huge desk out of a piece of plywood and some, yeah, it's a rough looking thing, but it serves the purpose. And, and uh, um, it's all spread out. And, and I think, okay, for me, like, understanding the world and communicating the essence of how the world works and, and what life is like doing that is sort of a ta sacred task. Right. And I feel very lucky, very honored that I can do something that I feel is sacred in some ways. And I feel an enormous obligation to do it honorably and accurately and without bias and with the intention to sort of help, like help people, live their lives with insight and knowledge and dignity. Like that's how I see my job. And so when I write something, it doesn't feel like it's coming out of me. When I'm writing well, the feel, the way I experience that subjectively isn't some kind of inspiration, right? Where I'm the originator of the thought. It feels like I've understood something crucial and that the truth is sort of flowing through me and I'm transmitting it. And, you know, I'm an atheist. I do not believe in God. I, uh, I, I, I kind of loathe mysticism in some ways. Like, I have no patience for it. And so I don't mean to sound mystical here. But my creative process basically is trying to get myself out of the way and open myself up to hearing and transmitting a kind of higher knowledge that I feel lucky to have somehow um, tapped into. Were those skills, do you feel like you were born with them or did that the ability to do that, to pour it under the page and under the screen and out of the camera and even the the ability to edit and, and use the word arrange? To me, that's a very creative act. But, you know, how, how do you look at that as a, you know, is that a, is that a gift? Is that a muscle? Um, I've had that since I was a teenager. By my own terms. I mean, I don't know if other people would think that but 
my experience of what we're calling the creative process, um, my experience of it subjectively was one of transmitting a communication from somewhere else to my notebook, to my laptop. Uh, and that started when I was a teenager. And for me, that's the only work worth doing for me. I've written plenty of stuff that wasn't the result of that process and it's garbage and I throw it out. Like the only thing worth wasting other people's, not wasting, the only thing worth asking other people to spend their time on is, is, is things that I have created through that process. Mm. Well, let's then take this idea, this, your sort of vehicle, the intention, you use that word, which I thought was really spot on. It felt, feels like it lands with this near death experience. You know, you talked about the aneurysm, my, you know, reading of the story and from other sources was that you didn't, didn't know it. It went undetected. You went there and it was, you were actually supposed to die is how I sort of, I, I, from the material that you said in other places, the New York times and the guardian. And so here you are on the other side of supposed to die and experiencing your father and going into a black hole. You can talk about that for a second, if you would, this, this process and now an obligation to do work. Like what is it, it, you know, is this near death experience, um, you know, does it, how does it impact your work or your perception of the work? Is it, is it just to your children now? Is that because that you you've galvanized around this and you have children, you know, this is a full circle moment or is there some bigger aha? Do you feel a burden to, to, uh, cultivate the intention and the community, all these aspects that we've been talking about? Well, I, you know, I'm a very, uh, healthy athletic person. I've been blessed with good health and I've always devoted myself to athletics. Um, I was a good runner when I was young. I ran a 221 marathon and uh, I've maintained a high level of fitness my whole life. No reason to think I would ever drop dead of a heart attack or anything like that. And, but for some reason, my whole life, I had this knowledge, this sort of awful knowledge that I wasn't going to survive past my late fifties. And, it, you know, I didn't know what to make of that because I'm not a superstitious person. I don't believe in clairvoyance and seeing the, the future. Um, and yet that I had that unsettled feeling. And then suddenly at age 58, in perfectly good health, I felt a sudden stabbing pain in my abdomen. And within a few minutes, I couldn't stand up. And within 10 minutes, I was going blind. And uh, I was bleeding out into my own abdomen, out of an artery in my abdomen. And my blood pressure was tanking. And I was dying by the minute. And I managed to hang on another hour and a half. I finally got to an, an ER. We were in a, you know, a place we we're far from the hospital. And when I got there, um, my hemoglobin was 1.2, which a doctor said to me in surprise, that's, inc that's incompatible with life. Like you cannot have a hemoglobin count that low and be alive. And I was not only alive, I was talking to the doctor. I had no idea I was dying. I knew something bad was going on. I had no idea I was dying. And I was dying. I was going off a cliff. And this black hole opened up underneath me. And let me just reiterate, I'm an atheist. I'm not religious. And I don't believe in anything I can't measure or test. Um, and um, I started get pulling, getting pulled into this black hole. And I said to the doctor, 
he was he was cutting my neck open to get a uh, line into my jugular to try to get some blood into me fast. And I said, Doc, you got to hurry up. You're losing me right now. And right then my dead father appeared, sort of beckoning me. And he appeared above me on my left. And I was like, I love you, but I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm not get get out of here. I'm not interested. And um, my father was a beautiful person. I, I, I love him. And there was nothing personal in this. I wanted it, but I wanted nothing to do with him. And those doctors somehow, somehow saved my life. It took them another eight hours. I was in agony. They couldn't give me a painkiller or anesthesia because my vitals were so low. My kidneys were failing. Uh, it was a long, long eight hours and they did it. And um, I woke up the next morning and the ICU nurse said, good morning. You almost died yesterday. In fact, no one can figure out why you're alive. Like you shouldn't have been able to survive that. And we're still figuring out how that happened, how you made it. And you're a very lucky man. And then she came back an hour later. You know, she sort of laid down the truth on me, right? I was shocked. I, I, I had Wait, no idea. Good morning. <laughs> like, yeah, good morning. Where's yeah. my coffee? <laughs> She came back an hour later. I mean, I'm throwing up blood. I'm all kinds of messed up, right? But um, an hour later, she says, hey, how are you doing? And I said, well, I, I'm okay. But honestly, what you said is really upsetting and um, terrifying that you can be in seemingly perfect health and die in your own driveway in front of your family, you know, like, which is what had almost happened to me. And she said, try not thinking about that as something scary. Try thinking about it as something sacred. And then she left the room again. <laughs> like the, the Buddha just appeared. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, and I lay there and thought about that. I was like, yeah, I was, I was taken to the, 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 the threshold of death. I mean, I was, I was allowed to look at death and I didn't have to go. I was, I, I was able to turn around and come back with that knowledge. It's a sacred knowledge. And um, I feel like I've gone to front lines my whole life uh, or my whole you know working life, um, front lines of one sort or another, including in wars. And I've come back with some information that seemed maybe useful or interesting to my readers. You know, I've gone to the ultimate front line, you know, the front line that we're all going to be at eventually where we die. And I've been able to come back and I'm you know, so I want to write about this. I'm, I'm going to write a book called Pulse about what keeps us alive and what happens when we die. That's a, there's a fascinating connection to me that seems like this vulnerability of life. You talked about being so healthy and then the next moment um, being not. You can imagine being in a war environment or I, I identify as an athlete myself. That's where my my background is in action sports and also been trapped in an ambulance near, near died. And you get, there's a lot of interesting, you know, very quick dialogue that one has with oneself in those moments. And, you know, the, just the vulnerability for you, you know, me dying on a snowy slope in Alaska or you dying in your driveway with your, with your family. It's like, and a moment before everything was fine. So, Let's extend that question to the vulnerability of, of freedom. We understand that life is very vulnerable. 
what is the vulnerability of freedom? Well, you know, it depends how you define freedom. Um, some people think that freedom comes from having a lot of money that insulates themselves from risk and hardship and uncertainty. Um, you can make a good case for that, right? I'm not here to argue anyone's definition of freedom, right? You could have, you could also make a good case that freedom is, is actually not having money and all of the responsibilities and the work hours and all that go into amassing a fortune that you can be temporarily, temporarily free. Your, your time is your own. And, um, you know, there's, you know, there's some, you know, there's some homeless people and, you know, homelessness comes with enormous stresses and trials and dangers. You know, I know that, but, uh, at least their time is their own. Right. And no corporate <laughs> lawyer can say that his times or her times are own, you know? Um, and uh, I, I was fortunate to talk to a guy who, who did, did, I think, about 25 years in prison. He committed murder when he was young. He, he was from a very, very violent environment. He got sucked into drugs, made some stupid choices, and he killed somebody. And he went to prison, and he educated himself in prison, and he, and he became an enlightened person. He found God, and he was let out on good behavior after, you know, some 20-some years. And I interviewed him a couple of weeks after he got out. And I said, um, I said, a fascinating conversation. He was a brilliant, brilliant man. I said, I feel silly asking this, but is it possible to be more free in prison than outside of prison? And he looked at me like I was crazy. He was like, yeah, of course it is. Are you kidding? Like, you can't be a drug addict in prison. You can't be like, you know, completely drowning in social media on your iPhone to totally distracted and obsessed with the sort of silliness of that whole endeavor in prison. There are no iPhones in prison, right? You got nothing but time and you're in there long enough. You got nothing but time. And eventually you're going to have an honest conversation with yourself about who you really are and what you're doing in there. And when you do that, you will be a free man. And there's a lot of people on the outside. And by that, he meant outside of prison. There's a lot of people on the outside that never even get around to that conversation. They are not free people. Was that one of the things that you discovered when in your book, Freedom, you walked the train tracks and you talked about, you know, Pennsylvania sometimes sleeping, you know, near meth addicts and within, I think you called it eye shot of a police station or a church and, um, was was that a big piece of what you found out? Was it was it about the the relationship that humanity has with with itself and freedom, or was there something beyond that? Yeah, I mean, we, me and a, a few other guys that have been in a lot of combat. Um, usually, there was four of us out there all together, and my dog Daisy. Uh, we walked along the railroad lines from D.C. to Philly to, to Pittsburgh. Um, we chose railroad lines because they're these sort of swaths of no, man, no man's land and they cut these sort of ribbons of no man's land that cut through America. And, you know, you, you can sort of do what you want out there, right? I mean, we, we called it high speed vagrancy. We were sleeping under bridges and abandoned buildings and getting our water out of creeks and cooking over campfires and, you know, slices right through everything, right? The suburbs and the ghettos and the farms and the woods and everything that America is. And, um, and we were completely, you know, we were very autonomous from society in a sort of an immediate sense. I mean, as I say in the book, you know, 
we covered around 400 miles and most nights we were the only people in the world who knew where we were. That's a form of freedom. Um, but we were completely enmeshed with each other and indebted to each other because we all, everyone had to contribute to keep us functioning, right? We had to cook, we had to get water. We were walking through 110 degree heat index at one point. We were walking, it was 15 degrees some night, you know, we walked through the winter. We did it, you know, in, in chunks over the course of a year. And um, it was hard out there, right? We were carrying heavy packs and it was rough. And our autonomy, our freedom came at a huge cost. Um, I mean, a cost of enormous effort and, 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 and a kind of suffering, right? And, and we needed each other. We were not free of each other. And you know what? We didn't want to be free of each other. Being held in the close embrace of the small group through, through cold and hot and you know, long days and short days. And, you know, Pennsylvania, someone, some, some guy started shooting at us, right? And we, we'd all been in combat and had, had the predictable reaction to that situation. And, um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, I would say the most profound freedom comes from being with people that you trust and you love and doing everything in your power to make sure that they're going to be okay. That's freedom. That's the ultimate freedom. And yeah, did we experience that form of freedom out there? Absolutely. Am I experiencing that as a father? Yeah, absolutely. It's a high, and it's the high point of my life. When you also talked about that time, though, this is going to be a little bit confusing for me, so maybe you can reconcile these things. You talked about that as one of the hardest things relative to combat and all of the crazy stuff that you've done, you talked about it being hard, incredibly hard nights, you said nights and weeks and felt just every day was a struggle. So is there a correlation between those two? Um, being feeling, feeling free out there, but that also being simultaneously incredibly difficult. Uh, if someone offers you a form of freedom that isn't hard, walk away. Don't trust it. It's not real. It's an illusion. Mm. I think yeah. that's exactly what freedom comes from. Uh, you have to you have to earn it and you have to maintain it. And uh, it does not come without effort of one sort or another. Hmm. So let's go back to the example you gave earlier about the suburban life, wealthy suburban, you had another adjective that I'm missing, but, uh, boring. If, <laughs> well played. Um, is that something that should be, uh, avoided and not trusted? I mean, not for some people, there's a lot of very beautiful, yeah. Good, yeah. good people who, I have very meaningful, wonderful lives in the suburbs. You know, I, I just know myself well enough to know I'm not going to be one of them, you know? And, uh, yeah. so I, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm not advocating anything for anybody, but you know, know thyself, you know what I mean? And if you're depressed, I mean, if you're, I mean, I, you know, I would say, I mean, look, I'm not a shrink. I don't have data for this, but I would, I'm going to hazard a guess that isolation is known to lead to a vulnerability to depression. And the forms of isolation that exist in the suburbs are well known. 
And I would say if you live in the suburbs, you're at a slightly increased or maybe significantly increased risk of depression. I'll just put it like that. How about the role of learning? You've clearly taken on some of these crazy experiences, uh, including uh, at at 55, taking up boxing. Uh, it's a skill that you're learning. Um, and from what I understand, learning to play the accordion. So how does that, you know, what role does learning play in, in freedom? And um, I think I'd like to explore both these. What role does learning play in freedom and in uh, just life life in general? Well, I mean, in, in, in terms of sort of biology and human history, um, if you can't defend yourself, if the group that you're part of can't defend itself, you're at risk of losing your freedom to a more powerful person, a more powerful group, right? I mean, the, the, the most reliable, obvious way of losing your freedom is being defeated by an enemy and killed or enslaved. And that's happened for hundreds of thousands of years in, the, in human history, right? So um, not that because I live in a uh, modern, secure state with the police force and all that, and I'm, you know, my, whatever, I mean, I, I'm lucky to live in a place, in a neighborhood where my immediate safety is not in question. Um, I didn't learn, I didn't learn boxing to sort of defend myself and maintain my freedom. That's why, not why I did it. I, need, I was going through a divorce and I needed something really intense and engaging. And I'd always wanted to learn how to box and I've always been a good distance runner, but um, I don't, I don't think I can fight worth a damn. And I wanted to change that. Right. And change it. I did like, I'm, I'm okay. You put some gloves on me. I'm all right. You know, in the ring. And uh, my trainer would laugh at that, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it. And, uh, um, and I learned accordion because I, I, it's a beautiful instrument and I, I love every musical tradition that that instrument's in and everyone plays the damn guitar. And I'm, and I was like, my whole life I was wanting to play accordion. So I was like, I'm getting divorced. I'm living in a weird place in the middle of Manhattan in this weird walk up semi rental thing. And uh, I'm like, all right, I know what I'm going to do with my time. I'm going to learn to play accordion and I'm going to learn to box. And I'm just going to have some dead time for a while in my life and put my head back together. And I was peri periodically going out on these railroad tracks with my brothers. And that's how I passed the, the year or so uh, that it took to uh, end my life with one person and, um, and you know, move on to the next phase. Oh, again, the, uh, your work has transcended so many genre in a really interesting way. Uh, the material, the content that you've written about, it's been, it's been incredibly inspiring to me and to so many others. And, uh, the last, last set of questions is around how do you view your work? Do you view it as an obligation, as a vehicle, as a mechanism? You talked about intent. And so what is, what is the intent with your work and, and what, you know, you mentioned a book that you're writing called Pulse. Um, talk to us about the intention of your work, and is that something that you're going to you're going to keep keep doing? Uh, the intention of my work is to help people make sense of the world, make sense of their lives, and to live uh, to lead their lives with dignity and understanding. Um, 
and to have compassion for other people. I mean, that's, that's what I do my work for. And, um, no, it's not an obligation. It's, uh, an enormous honor to be, to have for some weird freakish reason, I have the skill set that allows me to do my research and arrange words in English on the page in such a way that people want to read them. And it's an enormous honor. And, and, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and because my work is at least intended and hopefully results in people leading lives of more understanding and, and dignity, even in some small way, like that to me makes it a sacred task, a sacred task, the way teaching is a sacred task, the way the ministry is a sacred task. And I say that as an atheist, but it helps people lead lives of greater dignity and understanding. And so it's sacred. Um, therapists, I mean, the list goes on and on, right? And um, hospice workers, I mean, whatever. Doctors, um, it's all sacred if you define it the way I choose to. And so for me that I lucked out to be able to do something that I consider to have that kind of importance and meaning like, oh my God, I'm how lucky am I? Like I'd practically do it for free, you know, I mean, just to be able to do it. I think when you tap into that, that's a very common thing that I've heard. And uh, I want to say congrats again on your book, Freedom. Uh, profound as so much uh, so, so many of your other books and your other work um thanks again for being on the show is there a place you'd steer us to the, the the people who watch and listen to the show if they want to know more about you or your work any any particular handle on the internet or destination coordinates out there in the world besides just buying a copy of your latest book yeah i mean my website is sebastianyounger.com j-u-n-g-e-r sebastianyounger.com pretty simple um, I, I only have a flip phone. I don't do social media myself, um, but um, my publisher does for me. You know, I give them content and they put it up. So uh, I'm easy to find on Twitter and on Facebook. And uh, that's about all I know how to say about where to find me. <laughs> that's great. Uh, one last line of question since you hinted at it earlier and just said it overtly there. Um Social media, clearly uh, you've got some issues with it. Um, can you comment on that? Is it, is it, uh, is it a one-way street, only bad, or are there some good things? Or how do you, how do you see that? No, there's, there's a, no, I mean, social media and the internet are enormously powerful tools. They're great. You know, they just come at enormous cost. And that cost, you know, needs to be mitigated because, I mean, then there's, there's a lot of data behind this. I mean, the, the cost yeah. of, in mental health, for particularly young people, you know, the anxiety rates, depression rates, and suicide rates in teenagers, particularly teenage girls, starting in 2012 when Facebook came along, the kind of brutal self-examination that particularly teenagers can conduct on themselves when they are open for comparison to everybody else on social media, um, it's, it has a devastating impact. And for me, it's just a, it's just a waste of time compared to other things that I could be doing. So if I'm at my desk and I got to check my email and, you know, social media, whatever, like no problem. I'm at my desk, I'm working as part of my job. But God forbid I find myself walking down the street on a beautiful spring day with the whole world passing by, all of humanity passing by, the old people, the young people. 
the homeless, the beautiful, the everything, the children, whatever, the whole freak show. They're passing by and I'm buried in my phone. Are you kidding? Like, hopefully I'll, 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 I'll trip off a cab and get hit, trip off a curb and get hit by a cab and put me out of my misery. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to do that. The world's too bountiful and too amazing to lose any bit of it. You know, that's for when I'm in my office and, and there's nothing better on offer. Brilliant. And it's a fantastic way to sign off. The irony is not going to be lost on anybody that will share this across the internet. But again, the intention behind that being, being good and providing the value that um, is another vehicle for your work. And again, I want to th say thanks. Uh, now, here we go. 11 years full circle from our first meeting. And thanks again for being in the show. Huge congrats on the latest book, Freedom. Um, and and uh, we'll keep an eye on your next book, Pulse, which you've already made clear to us and, and other stuff. Thanks again, Sebastian, for being on the show. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks. All right. To everybody out there in the internet world, uh, let's keep our noses out of our phone and into the, the creating the life, uh, the dreams that you seek in career and hobby and life. And uh, until next time, from Sebastian and yours truly, we bid you adieu. All right. Hey, before you go, thank you so much for listening. And I want you to know that I appreciate the time, the attention that you give to this show, to the guests, and to yours truly. And I wanted to take a second to say thank you. This community, like any community, is a testament to the saying that a rising tide lifts all boats. By elevating one another, by sharing and resharing the show, the tidbits that you learn, the experiences that you take away from here, we can collectively have a massive positive impact on the world. Now, whether you're new here to my orbit or you've been here for a decade, I would encourage you to think about how you can show up for your peers, for your fellow creators, and the people in your life that you really know and care about. And one way of doing that is to share this podcast. If you've got any value from one of these shows or if you've been listening for a long time, you're spreading the love means the world to me. That's how this show gets out. We don't spend a dollar on paid advertising for the show. It's you and me and the guests on the show that help reach new people every week. So I wanted to say thank you. I wanted to remind you that the only way this thing grows is if we grow together. And, uh, and I'm grateful for any and all action that you take to that end. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together.